Father, I turn myself now, looking at the Word and teaching it as best I can by Your Spirit, asking, Father, that what uh, little I may do with the text would be magnified so that Your Teacher, the Holy Spirit, would be able to turn it to good and, and to useful instruction in all our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we move into the second of three sections that describe Paul's years in captivity. If you were here last week, you remember the first one was as he becomes a captive in Jerusalem, stands before the Jewish council, and then soon after is transferred and moves to Caesarea. So last week it was Paul in Jerusalem under the control of the Roman commander and examined by Romans. This week he'll move to Caesarea and be examined once again. When he was in Jerusalem, he was seen both by the Jewish council and by the Roman commander in a separate incident, but neither really achieved anything. Neither really came to any conclusion. There was never any verdict Uh, declared concerning Paul. There was no decision concerning his guilt or innocence. It was after that plot was uncovered to take his life that he was hustled out of town quickly overnight. It just put an end to the proceedings, so there really was no conclusion drawn. And there's really not been much of a case here against Paul from the start. If you look back over the events from chapter 22 through tonight and even onward after tonight, it's easy to see God at work in keeping Paul in custody because there's really no human explanation for it. Paul has never been accused of anything specifically by anyone. There's no witnesses who've ever come forward. The Jews have made accusations that are general and slanted and without any evidence to back it up. And the Romans, for their part, have been holding on to Paul more out of curiosity and out of an abundance of caution than out of any real concern that he's violated Roman law. In fact, last week we saw the commander writing a letter to Felix saying this man has broken no Roman laws. It defies human explanation for why Paul is still in custody. The only explanation that seems to make sense is God has destined that Paul would remain in the hands of the Romans so that he might be escorted under their control and protection all the way to Rome in keeping with what was said in Acts 9.15 when Jesus instructed Paul that he would be called as an apostle to the Gentiles so that he could preach before, among other things, before kings. And God is putting that plan into action now And Paul, for his part, I think, is understanding of this and has been even back before he arrived in Jerusalem, which is why he defended his course of action in going to a city where everyone was warning him, the spirit included, that he would be taken into custody. Paul understood this was part of the plan. And Paul, you can assume, could have made his way to Rome under some other manner than to do it this way. But he would never have had the same opportunity to reach the upper echelons of Roman authority along the way, like he is going to have the opportunity to do in this way. So ironically, as a prisoner of Rome, he had far easier access to the leadership of Rome than he did if he had just been a citizen of Rome. So as 23 ended last week, he had arrived in Caesarea before Felix, the procurator for Judea. And Felix, if you remember, said, we're going to wait until your accusers arrive from Jerusalem and then we'll conduct the trial. And in the meantime, he's put in the praetorium. That word in Greek simply means palace. And it's the general term in Greek for any palace that a king would use. So the praetorium here is the one in Caesarea, which was built historically. This one was built by Herod the Great. And it was the home of the procurator for Judea. So just as Paul had been housed earlier in the Antonian fortress in Jerusalem, which was the palace for the commander in in the city, now we see him here housed in the palace for Caesarea. Paul, by the way, spoke of his time in this location in Philippians when he wrote 
the prison epistle. He didn't write it while he was here, but he reflected back on his time in Caesarea in that letter. In the first chapter in 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul himself gives two primary reasons, as he understood it, for why God had permitted his imprisonment. And his reference to the Praetorian Guard is the clue to tell us he's referring to this moment when he was in Caesarea. The first of those two reasons was to inspire the brethren to greater courage in speaking the word of God. At first glance, that might sound backwards. How does the sight of your leader in prison encourage you to do more of what put him in prison? Well, it's in seeing what happens after he went into prison that the encouragement comes. In watching how Paul went forward into Jerusalem despite the warnings, went into custody willingly, taken his imprisonment as another opportunity to evangelize, all of these things gave encouragement to someone who said, if I evangelize, I'll find myself imprisoned. Take courage in the fact that by being imprisoned, you have new opportunities. By being imprisoned, you have the opportunity to, to, in your own example, encourage those behind you. Turn it to good in the way God uses these circumstances. Don't view it as a failure or as an excuse not to act. So the first answer is that it encourages others to speak the word. And secondly, Paul says his time in prison opened doors for him to preach to a part of Roman society that would otherwise never have known the truth, never been exposed to the truth, to the Praetorian Guard, for example. He went inside a a group of people who would never have known Paul otherwise. So that gives us second reason to take encouragement out of what we may see in in times of persecution. It may open up opportunities that are only possible in such times. So there, that brings us into chapter 24. In the trial that takes place before Felix, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing, for we have found this man a real pest, And a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Looking at the circumstances of the moment, first, you see that it took five days for the Jewish leaders to make their way to Caesarea on foot. That is slower than Paul because Paul had the benefit of riding a horse as it was provided to him. But in reality, that's very fast by foot, which is probably an indication of how much they desired the opportunity to prosecute Paul in this way. The elders came, but so did the high priest Ananias himself. That tells you something about how important this was to him. And he brought an attorney. The attorney here, Tertullus, 
bears a Greek name which suggests very strongly that he was either a Hellenistic Jewish or more likely a Gentile. Which begs the question, why would the Jewish leadership hire a Gentile attorney? Well, the irony is so thick you can cut it with a knife. I hope you see the irony for yourself. In this case, it's because he's going before a Roman court, which would follow Roman law, Roman proceedings, and Jews would have had very little, if any, knowledge of how those proceedings would have normally gone. So they would have had to hire a Gentile attorney who was familiar with how the law was run under Roman rule, and then he could prosecute the case properly within the law, within the rules of law that governed Rome. So they appear here in this way, and as Paul stands before Felix, the prosecutor lays out the case. The attorney here, in typical fashion, begins by ingratiating himself to the judge. That's not terribly unusual, nor is it hard to understand. He begins here by acknowledging Felix's benevolent rule over Judea for the years he's been in power. And now the things he says here in one sense are false. Judea had not been a time of great peace, as this man claims that it was under Felix's rule. In recent years uh, and decades prior to this moment, it had experienced revolts and uprisings, largely due to the Jews' unwillingness to be ruled by Rome. There were also reports of Felix permitting bands of thieves to prey on road travelers in Judea, and then he would demand that the thieves share some of their proceeds with him. He was greedy and he was unscrupulous. It's clear that he's intending to flatter Felix, and flattery is a form of lying, biblically speaking. It's insincere compliments. If there had been no opportunity for gain, if it was purely a moment of transparency, you would not have expressed things this way. But because you have something you want from the person, it becomes a form of manipulation, and as such, it's sin. It's lying. These reports were well known, and in that way, to hear a man stand up and say, we, we appreciate your largesse and how kind you are and how well you've ruled is merely flattery. There was no sincerity in any of that. But on the other hand, there is some general truth to what this man has said. And remember, the best lie has to have something that seems reasonable or truthful, or no one accepts it on its face. One of my best examples out of Scripture is in the way the Pharisees would accuse Jesus of being a drunkard. Now, if there had been absolutely nothing to the claim, then the charge never would have had any merit or even been assumed to have any merit. There had to be something about Jesus' personality, his gregarious nature, the way he and the disciples enjoyed themselves. The nugget of truth was he was outgoing. He enjoyed people's company. He cavorted with tax collectors and sinners. He did the kind of thing that would lend some credence to an accusation that he was drunk. And as such, it might stick, even though it was false. Same thing here. The only way the statement that, Felix, we know how good you've been, would have had any reason to be accepted as valid is because there was a general truth that underlied it. This is a period of time we call the Pax Romana, a time of about 200 years in, in world history in which there was relative peace, relative prosperity throughout the Roman Empire imposed because of their absolute control over their enemies. And if you were a member of Roman society during this 200-year period, that began with the first century, ended about 217 or so, then you could say fairly that it was a time of peace and prosperity. That was generally what it was like. But there were less peaceful areas, like Judea, like Britannia, with the Scots trying to fight the Romans as they invaded England. So there were parts that were not that peaceful, and Judea was one of them. Well, anyway, after that long-winded explanation of that long-winded introduction, the attorney now moves to a specific set of accusations. Here's where he lays out his case. First, he says Paul was a pest. Now, 
That may not sound like a legal accusation, at least in the way we use the word, but in that day it had more meaning. The Greek word for pest here means literally plague or pestilence. That's where we get the word pest from. And he is literally saying Paul was a pest in that day, not so much metaphorically, but more literally, in the sense that Paul was a plague upon society. He meant he was a blight on the city of Jerusalem or within the Roman Empire. He was a plague because he's causing dissension. So the accusation is Paul himself is the cause of dissension among all Jews throughout the world. And when you see the word world, you need to understand that they mean the Roman Empire. The dissension, by the way, dissension in the Greek is the word stasis, and it literally means insurrection. So now you start to see real crimes being listed here. Paul being a cause, a dissenter, and his crime is of insurrection. This accusation is very carefully worded because he's just said that Paul is accused of inciting insurrection among the Jews. And that charge would have been a particularly damaging one if it were true, because remember, of all the peoples that were ruled under the Roman Empire, arguably the Jews were the ones who were most ready to rebel and most easily stirred up uh, by insurrectionists. And so they were the ones the Romans were particularly concerned about, and the Romans would react particularly strongly at any uh, accusation that somebody was stirring Jews up to, in, to, to rebel. So this man has laid that charge now out in front of Felix. Besides the fact that it's a lie, it does testify a little bit to Paul's effectiveness as a minister of the gospel, doesn't it? He, he's, he now has a reputation of reaching all Jews and stirring all of them up by confronting all of them with the gospel. That's quite a testimony. You notice, thirdly, the lawyer identifies Paul as a ringleader of a sect called the Nazarenes. The word sect suggests very specifically that that they viewed Paul and his followers as members of the Jewish religion, the word sect indicating a subgroup within something larger. So it's clear, as you see, that the Jews themselves, their attorney here speaking for them, they viewed Christians, even at this point in history, as simply being uh, incalcitrant Jews, wayward Jews, rebellious Jews. They didn't see the separation yet. And as such, their hatred for Paul was for their unwillingness to be held accountable to Jewish authorities, for falling in line, for failure to follow in line and accept the authority of Pharisees and the high priest and all the rest. They were seen as rebellion within the Jewish faith. And then lastly, the prosecutor here charges Paul with desecrating the temple, though he never says how. Now, that charge was important because it explained the actions of the Jews in the temple. There's a bit of self-serving quality to this accusation. It not only explains to some degree why Paul should be prosecuted, but it also explains why the Jews who rioted in the temple were justified in doing so. Remember, I said last week that the Jews were permitted to kill Jew or Gentile who was in the temple violating their rules of how the temple was to be conducted. And the Romans had allowed the Jews that license. They literally had a license to kill inside their temple. The attorney says, by the way, the Jews had lawfully arrested Paul. Do you notice? We arrested him, he said. That's not true. Not true at all. They were inciting violence against Paul without benefit of a trial. There was no formal arrest taking place. They were just mob violence. And then lastly, the attorney levies a charge against the Roman commander. Now, you don't notice that at first until you read between the lines a little bit. That captain who was in the temple who arrested Paul saved him from death, right? Took him in, tried to question him. Well, Tertullus intimates that the Roman commander here violated law when he intervened to stop the action of the Jews. Because remember, 
the Romans said the Jews could take action against offenders in the temple. And so now the attorney is suggesting that the commander had no jurisdiction to intervene. And that by his intervention, he was actually working against Roman law. Now, I want you to notice as he finishes his speech and he turns it back over to Felix saying, if you'll examine Paul, you'll see for yourself all of this is true. Notice at this point, no proof. An accusation is one thing, but proof is something totally different. There's been no proof offered for any of these accusations and none will be offered since none exists. What he'll do instead, as you see, is he'll turn it over to Felix and say, if you just ask him some questions, you'll get your proof. And now it's time for Paul to speak, and Felix gives him that opportunity. Acts 24.10. Now, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which now they accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that, they, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. Well, Paul's defense here may not sound very uh, compelling, doesn't make for good TV, perhaps, seems even to wander a little bit, but he actually addresses all the charges very effectively in a couple of steps. He begins here with something that may sound similar to what the attorney did. It may sound like flattery, but it, there's a world of difference because of what Paul said. Paul begins by declaring that he was happy to present his defense the reason he was happy to present his defense was because he was standing before someone who has been a judge over Israel for many years. The implication being, he knows their law. He knows their own rules. He understands how things work in the temple. And he understands how Jewish leadership is quite easily prone to manipulation and to lying, frankly. So Paul begins his defense by pointing out that, number one, I've been in this city for 12 days. Hardly enough time to organize and lead an insurrection. I just arrived. I'm basically a tourist in the town, is what he's implying. And then he goes quickly from that point of order, to, to, you know, from the point of suggesting I had no real opportunity to do what they're accusing me to do. He moves to the next point, which is, and oh, by the way, I really don't need to mount much of a defense here because they've offered you no proof in any case for anything I've done. And then he moves thirdly now to say, well, let me tell you what the real story is since I really have nothing to defend myself against. There's been no accusation that's been proven. He goes to the next point and says, let me give you the, the true purpose for why I arrived in the city. And that was to worship. He acknowledges one statement of the attorney in the course of that summary. He says, I am a member of the way, this sect that they refer to, or in other words, Christianity. Now, Paul could admit this, of course, because it's not a crime 
as, as yet anyway, it wasn't a crime in Rome to be a Nazarene. Nazarene refers to this sect of Judaism or Christianity, as we would call it today. Paul testifies, uh, interestingly here, he says, I was a part of this way, this, this sect. But then he clarifies what the sect is. He says, it's the fulfillment of all that the Jews cherished and all that the Jews worshipped. It is the fulfillment of the law and it is the fulfillment of the prophets. Now Paul gets to the real issue. And this is why it was so important to him that there was a man standing in front of him who he understood knew Jewish law and Jewish history, at least to some extent. He says, I am standing before you because I preach the fulfillment of something that these men cherish, but yet they reject. And it angers them that I have chosen to preach that what they look forward to has actually come. This is all implied in his statements here. He says, I'm preaching concerning the resurrection of the dead, of Christ, in other words, resurrected from the dead. And I am here simply because they don't like to hear me preach this truth concerning the gospel. This is all embedded or implied in what Paul is saying to this person, all that predicated on, a, on an understanding that he knows something about Jewish culture and teaching. Paul adds here that the, the reality of this coming resurrection was in fact his main motivation for maintaining a clear conscience. What a powerful thing to remember, and maybe something we don't give enough thought to generally in the church today. Knowing that a resurrection is true, and what that implies, of course, is a return to life to stand in front of the judge who resurrected us. Knowing that, we should be wishing to have at all times a good testimony in obedience to God, and Paul says, and to men, and to the law of the, of the society, so that he will have a good outcome at that judgment. It's such an easy principle to agree to intellectually. Oh, yes, I know there's a judgment. And of course, that means I need to think about what I do in the meantime. And yet it is so easy not to live accordingly, isn't it? It's so easy to have bad moments. Everyone shares in that. That's nothing unique. But it's a, it, it, it is a challenge that we can't ignore when we see even Paul himself saying, I am consciously, continually aware of my behavior because I believe in the thing I preach, because I believe in resurrection. Meaning, of course, that there was a judgment that he answers to. Paul finally says the incident in the temple was merely the result of his hatred. And he says, I came in. I didn't bring a crowd. I didn't speak to anybody. I started to worship. I had given, I had taken time to purify myself. I was going to give alms. He's referring here to the donations that he carried from the Gentiles. Uh, I had done all of these things. There was no accusation against me that has been proven. But the only people who have ever stood against me publicly and accused me were these Jews from Asia. Remember what their accusation was? That he was bringing into the temple a Gentile that they had seen him consorting with at an earlier point in the city. And they came to the wrong conclusion that just because Paul was friends with this guy in the city, he must have brought him all the way into the temple, which is probably nothing more than an excuse to go after Paul. But they are not here. Paul very specifically makes note of their absence because under Roman law, there was severe penalties for accusers who made charges but yet then failed to back them up in court. And so Paul was alluding to the fact that you have lawbreakers as my main accusers for they're not even here under Roman law to do their part. So without real accusers present, Paul essentially cuts off the rest of his defense. I mean, it seems to be a somewhat abrupt finish and and justifiably so because he turns and challenges Ananias, Ananias and the elders to provide some of that proof that they have heretofore not given. Paul reminds them all that he only spoke one phrase at that prior inquisition. He's being put on trial for the resurrection of the dead, which caused the uproar in the council. Paul brings that to mind here at the very end 
to bring to light that Ananias and the elders had done their best to try him once and it had gone nowhere. And Paul had given no statement. He only spoken one phrase. There had been no evidence presented. Nothing had happened in that trial. And so Paul's saying here again to those men, here's a second chance. Why don't you see if you can do something this time to convict me? All right, so we've seen the attorney. We've seen Paul. Now it's Felix's turn. Verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping the money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. It sounds like a cartoon character, doesn't it? And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Well, you can see, obviously, as we finish this part of the chapter, it's very clear how long Paul spends in this place. It's quite, long, quite a long time, two years. And we get a sense of what was going on during that time. Back at verse 22, we hear Felix described as someone who has a more exact knowledge of the way, which means he had some kind of understanding, some kind of experience with Christianity. The Greek phrase, a more exact knowledge, means specifically an accurate or thorough understanding of Christianity. The suggestion here, although we don't know specifically what he understood, the suggestion here is he understood enough to know that the accusations were not sound, which is why he didn't render a a guilty verdict. It would also seem to explain what happens next to Paul, at least in part. Felix says he waited, his excuse is, I'm going to wait for the commander to come and explain the, the whole situation to me before I render my verdict. But Felix never summons the commander, as far as we can tell. There's no indication the commander was ever asked to really show up. It, it really looks more like he's lying here just to make excuse for not coming to a, ver- a verdict. And furthermore, if it was really the case that he needed more input from the commander, he had the letter, and the letter said Paul's not guilty of anything under Roman law. So there was plenty already available for him if he really just wanted an answer to the verdict. He's making an excuse here for not rendering a verdict. What it seems to be is twofold. One, he wants time to listen to Paul. There's something about Paul, either his reputation or what he's seen in the moment, that leads Felix to want to learn more about this faith that Paul preached, even though he had a very firm understanding of it. Maybe that understanding had just led him to a bunch of questions. And he, secondly, apparently, wanted to get money. That's very much in keeping with the reputation of Felix from what we know in ancient literature. Uh, Felix was an unscrupulous man, and so he probably operated this way as a regular occurrence. Keeping in mind that Paul took a large donation from the Gentile churches into Jerusalem, and Felix has heard that, heard about the alms, and maybe also just from his knowledge of what was being done by Paul as he traveled through the areas of Judea, he may have thought that Paul had uh, access to a lot of money. Well, we can see what Felix does here, at least over the next months and years. He doesn't seem to have any ill will against Paul. Paul's granted considerable privilege in the meantime. I mean, if you can consider holding him prisoner, not showing ill will. But in the way he did it, it's clear that he has some affinity for Paul. His wife, who we're told is a Jewess, a Jew in other words, together with Felix, they begin to have hold court, really, I guess, and have Paul come in 
and speak to them and they listen to Paul's preaching. Now, you could begin to see some logic here, some reasoning behind why he's doing this. You know, it's not many people that could command an audience with Paul on a regular basis and do so at will. They've been able to secure Paul as a public speaker at will because Paul's going to speak anytime he's allowed out of that room. What else is he going to do? And Drusilla, as a Jewess, probably had a very specific interest from her side of life. Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who you may remember put James to death and imprisoned Peter. Who knows if those experiences may have had some influence on her or the news of them or or what she heard or, or saw going on in that day. By the way, Felix had wooed this woman from a previous marriage, which would have been a scandalous thing, even among Romans in that day. And another interesting detail, Felix and Drusilla had one son who was killed in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in A.D. 79. It's been said by one commentator that these discussions, these meetings that took place over these years with Paul and Drusilla and Felix, you have enslaved royalty addressing royal slaves. It's an interesting way to look at the dichotomy. There was probably a curiosity factor, but we hoped, we would hope, that there was some kind of sincere interest behind all of this, wouldn't we? We'd hope that somewhere inside Felix or Drusilla, something is stirring, and what they're really working on is an understanding of the gospel. They're being drawn, they're being wooed to some extent by the Spirit, and this whole set of circumstances have been set up by God so that there would be this opportunity for these two people to hear the gospel and finally accept it. They certainly had no lack of opportunity in the way this has been orchestrated. Luke says Paul preached concerning righteousness, self-control, and judgment. These are the same three elements that Jesus himself said would be preached after his departure under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, he says this in John 16, 8. Jesus said, And he, speaking of the Spirit, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now notice the response. This is, this is simply to say that Paul stood before this man and his wife and preached consistently on the, the basic tenets of faith, on acceptance of sin as a prerequisite, meaning coming to repentance, on the realities of what righteousness requires and how to obtain it through faith, and then the judgment that comes for all, the the incentive, if you will, to know these things are true. And the response to this preaching, when we see described here, when we see it described in terms of Felix, he seems, number one, clearly convicted. And that conviction leads to a kind of frightened or vulnerable concern where he must have sensed his own jeopardy and the prospect of judgment for his sin. Remember, this is a man who we know from history, from what's been written about him, he schemed and robbed and cheated and lusted and adulterated and had any number of other sins consume him over his life. He must have known, as all people do in their heart, the jeopardy they have before God. And by by known, I, I don't mean to imply that he reasoned out that he was a sinner and had judgment coming. It's more instinctive than that. That's why we call it conscience and not mental understanding. But his conscience was convicted. He understood there was something he would, that he should be frightened of, even if he couldn't articulate it. But when he came to that understanding, when he came to that moment, his response was to run away from the truth and not toward it. Felix proves Paul's own words, which he wrote in Romans. In Romans 3.9, Paul said, 
What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Greeks? Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. In the course of that masterful work on righteousness, Paul taught that both Jew and Greek are under the charge of sin before God. And that charge, that jeopardy, that vulnerability, drives them away from his presence. He says that's why there is none righteous. And then furthermore, that's why no one seeks for God. The vulnerable do not seek for their judge. Those who have a debt don't seek out their creditor. Here we're talking about a spiritual issue, a spiritual deficit, a spiritual obligation that has a very profound spiritual judgment awaiting it. And the unbelievers don't have a rational appreciation for this. It's instinctive. They're not reasoning out. I have sin. There is a God. He is holy and just. I will be in jeopardy when I go before judgment. Judgment is coming. There is a resurrection. Those things are all absent in the mind of the, of the unbeliever who's never been taught on such matters. But that doesn't mean they lack the instinctive appreciation that they have sin, that there is a lawgiver, and that they are a lawbreaker. And Paul points out that it is this 100% culpability before God that results in a 100% failure to seek Him, truly seek Him, for they have no basis on which to approach Him apart from grace. John writes it this way. John says, The light of Christ coming into the darkness of the world could not be perceived because of the darkness of men's own hearts. In John 1, he says, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Felix here, if you will, has been exposed to the light. He's been exposed to the gospel through the preaching of Paul. But he cannot comprehend it. And the conviction of his sin, which is the the natural result of our unrighteousness being exposed to the light, to the righteousness of God, that conviction drove him away in fear. Paul says it is not our awareness of our jeopardy and our fear of judgment that brings us to faith. Though that is a precursor, that is a prerequisite, to know that we have a debt and to feel repentance over that debt is a precursor. But it alone does not bring us to faith. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. There must be an act of God in kindness and in mercy to draw us through that process and bring us out the other side, embracing the gospel rather than running from it. As the light is exposed to us, we shrink back from it. Paul describes the very moment of bringing us to the other side in the face of the gospel. He describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 6, in one very concise statement, Paul says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Our understanding of the light, which men did not comprehend by their own nature, our understanding of the light is the result of God shining that understanding, as Paul uses the, the metaphor of light, shining it into our hearts, making us aware of something we could not understand on our own. And that's the kindness of God. And that kindness leads us to repentance, an act of embracing God's grace as opposed to running from it. With Felix, we see a man who is a quintessential unbeliever, 
convicted of sin in the presence of the gospel and the truth of Paul's message, fleeing from that truth because his nature knows no other alternative. And God, for whatever reason, has not determined to grant him the kindness that leads to repentance. And apart from God's grace, there's no hope. Following this frightening incident, Felix then, we're told, continues to hold Paul essentially hostage for two years, hoping to extort money from Paul in exchange for his freedom. But interestingly, along the way, he continues these conversations. Now, we need to note, Paul never makes an offer of money, it would seem apparent. Paul never does anything to try to uh, win his freedom that way. Instead, we, we see very clearly Paul seems to be content to just remain where God has put him. In this case, two years in the Praetorium in, in Caesarea. Knowing, I presume, that this opportunity to preach to Felix and to receive visitors and all of whatever else he was doing was all part of God's plan. Now, how would we react to this situation today? The more I contemplated that, the more I realized there are some really strong parallels with some very interesting and I think difficult, for some people anyway, difficult to resolve questions. For example, if we were incarcerated unjustly in a foreign prison while on a mission trip, and we've even heard of things like that happening not too long ago in the news, and we knew that a bribe would free us, would we pay a bribe so that we could get home, so that we can continue our mission, so that we could take care of our family? I mean, we could come up with, I'm sure, many good reasons why staying there is probably not the best thing for us. And if a little money was going to free us, maybe that's why God gave us the money. Maybe that's why the mission had the money. In other words, I'm sure we could craft together a logical argument that seemed to make good sense for that prospect, for that alternative. Or would we do what Paul did? Would we see our circumstances as he saw his? Would we just patiently allow our time in prison to become a witness opportunity? Would, would that become our mission? Would we stop making arbitrary distinctions between where we're housed and where we spend our day? And simply see it as all a continuum of God using our life however, wherever, and whether I'm incarcerated in a cube eight hours a day, before I go home and I'm incarcerated in my house for the other 16 hours a day, or if I'm incarcerated in someone else's home or building for 24 hours a day, if I'm preaching to this room of very nice and, and friendly people or to a room of guards, does it matter? Internally, does it matter? It doesn't mean that we don't take every opportunity to leave that kind of a circumstance if God seems to be opening the door for it. I mean, we're not saying we, we would be stubborn about anything in that way but only under the right conditions. And in the meantime, understanding God is in control and therefore our time in that place has been ordained for his glory. Use it. But when our only alternative to escape it is an unpalatable one, it's one that causes us to violate law or compromise integrity or anything of that sort, and at worst deny our own faith, if that were the requirement, well, we certainly wouldn't accept those things. We would accept them as essentially locked doors that God has not opened yet. So we must accept that judgment and stay where we are for the time being. I brought this up in passing, but I brought it up mainly because I do feel like there are times in which we're so uncomfortable at the prospect of our way of life being disrupted that we work harder to re remain in the way of life, to maintain it or preserve it or, rec or recover to it then we do just understanding the change may be because the ministry we are supposed to engage in has also changed and this new location and situation is our audience or our life as we are exposed to it is our mission and people's understanding of how we approach it will become worthwhile testimony later. Like Paul said when he wrote the letter to 
Philippians. You know, he said, they saw something in me that became an encouragement to them. But something tells me Paul did not use those audiences to come in and argue his case. He just said, are we ready for another lesson, Felix? Good, I've got something new to tell you today that I didn't tell you yesterday. That's my assumption for how Paul approached this time. If I'm right that he already knew he was in captivity for a time, God had planned this, and he wasn't going to try to get out of it. He's just going to use it. He said the whole Praetorium Guard has come to hear the gospel. Luke says that two years ended when Felix was succeeded by Festus. We'll talk more about him next week. He's the subject of chapter 25. He's Paul's antagonist for the next stage of trial. Felix here is deposed. We hear of him transitioning. We don't really hear about why in Luke's gospel, but history tells us why. He was deposed by Nero in A.D. 60 because a fight broke out in Caesarea between Jews and Greeks in that town. And Felix's response to the outbreak of violence was very harsh. And in the ensuing response, the soldiers he sent in to to quell the riot killed a lot of Jews in the process. And the Jews that were left in Caesarea lodged formal complaint with Nero in Rome. Remember, Rome was an empire ruled by law. I mean, it was very respectful of its own laws. When this happened, Nero gets word from the Jews that Felix has violated the law, essentially, by being too harsh. This is the equivalent to the Rodney King trial. It's the equivalent of that. Police acting under the the color of, of, of their shield, doing what they're supposed to do, but then doing too much becomes opportunity for a complaint, which results in a, a response. And what Nero did was recalled Felix to Rome and sent Festus down into Caesarea. When Felix received the notice to be recalled to Rome, he didn't know what was going to happen at that point. He just knew he had to go stand in front of Nero. It's like getting called to the principal's office. So before he left, we hear that he re- kept Paul in prison to please the Jews. Now you see the sense of that, right? Felix here is being accused by the Jews for being too forceful and in an attempt to win their favor a little bit, rather than let Paul out, he tells them, I'll make sure Paul stays in prison after I'm gone, hoping that that might soften the charges or at the very least not antagonize them any more than he already had. Turns out it didn't matter and he was put out of his job. Chapter 25 is the trial of Festus. Chapter 26 is King Agrippa who steps in after Festus. So you see Paul here now getting the privilege of speaking to a king. And then from Agrippa, Paul will appeal to Rome. He makes an appeal to have his case heard by Caesar, which was the right of a Roman citizen. And that becomes the basis for Paul moving to Rome. And then we have chapters in which Paul is sailing and shipwrecked and all the rest all the way into Rome. Father, thank you again for the provision of our building tonight and for the company and the patience and attendance of so many who would give their time to study your word. And thank you, Father, for the spirit and for the conviction that comes by the kindness of God. Thank you, Father, for the, for the right to be called children of God by faith. And thank you, Father, for the testimony of a man who would go into circumstances like imprisonment and knowing his life would be cut short ultimately, but do so, Father, willing to do as, as he was called. Let that be our model. And let us come back in the next two weeks, Father, and finish this study as we've planned so that we may hear the whole counsel of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.